Thank you for listening to the Calvary Chapel of Aurora podcast with Pastor Ed Taylor. We pray that as you study through God's Word, you'll be blessed by God's abounding grace. Again, I am so honored that you guys would come out on a Wednesday night and, uh, and spend time with us because I believe in the power of God that he's here today and that he's going to um, teach us from his word and he's going to give us something that you're going to go home with today that's going to change your life. Yeah. We got people shouting from the rafters here. Not even joking. That was amazing. Okay, so... We believe God's going to do this. We're very excited for what he's going to do for us um, because he's a God who loves to speak to his people. And so let's, uh, let's invite him here right now. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much that you have given us your word that you um, promised to speak to us with, God. And you, uh, you provide so much um, instruction, so much passion in your word. And God, I don't want anyone to leave from this place without having a, a, a connection with you and a meeting with you. God, and we want everyone to, to know that they're loved here because we've been loved by you, so we're going to love each other with all our heart, with all our soul and mind. God, because there's no law against that. And God, as we talk about law and we talk about grace, God, I pray that these terms would just be ingrained in our heart. And Lord, we want to look directly at your face and not be distracted by anything, even our own life and our own performance or lack thereof. And so, Lord, we pray that you would be our teacher, God. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. Book of Galatians is what we're in. We are going to be talking for the next while about a subject. So I'm going to, I've kind of entitled our time in Galatians, uh, A War Against Legalism. A war against legalism. How many of you guys, you guys have heard the term legalism, right? And you guys probably could come up with just as good a definitions as I could. But that's what we're, we're going to talk a little bit about legalism. We're going to talk about what it means to be legalistic and how um, it is false. And how freedom is what God has, came, God has given us. And it's the opposite of legalism. All right. So Galatians, if I could summarize Galatians, the whole book, uh, it's that it, it, it's trying to explain that the Christian life consists not of behaving, but being. Let me say that again. The Christian life is about behave, not about behaving. It's about being. And when you're being, when you've been changed from the inside you become a godly person. It's not about behavior. Behavior modification is never talked about in the Bible. But grace is. So Galatians is a very powerful book that is going to, it has the ability to expose and destroy legalism in your life if you let it. If you guys want to let, want to be freed from it, from legalism, Galatians is the book to help you do it. And if you look at Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, this is the verse that kind of summarizes the whole book for us. It says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. 
Stand fast in the liberty in which Christ has made you free. That would be the verse that I would give you as the sum of Galatians and the sum of our Christian life as well. That was chapter 5, verse 1. But we're going to be in chapter 1. We're going to start at the beginning. So when I say legalism, what is legalism? The best way I could describe it, describe it is it is a substitute for spiritual living. So when I say spiritual living, what do you guys think of? Do you guys think of a, a person who is trying to do their best? Or a person who is controlled by the Spirit? That's what spiritual living is. A person who's controlled by the Spirit. Who has the Spirit inside them. Who's connected spiritually to our God. And legalism is an imitation of that. It's a substitute. You know, you look at people, the great heroes of the faith, and you, you read about, like, Corey Ten Boom, or the people who were burned at Smithfield, or, or any of these uh, martyrs that you read about, and you think, how could they do that? How could they do, accomplish such great feats for the Lord? You think about it. What, what was it about them? And we're told in Scripture, it's just that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. They were real spiritual people. And we, as, as sometimes carnal people, we will try to sometimes imitate that. And be like, okay, well, what did they do? Well, they, they worked really hard, or they, they read the Bible a lot, or they did this a lot, or they did that a lot. So I'm going to try to do those things instead of trying to be a spiritual person. It's a, it's a, it's a substitute. It's not the real thing. Because we could never imitate what the Spirit does in our life. So do you think that you're spiritual tonight? Do you think you're a spiritual person? When you think about that, do you think it's because of what you do or don't do that makes you a spiritual person? Do you think it's who you follow? I follow Pastor Ed. That makes me a spiritual person. Nope. Do you think it's because of the group you belong to, that if you get a membership to an organization, you are now a spiritual person? Or because you're a member at a church, you're a spiritual person? Or a, a certain code or a rule that you keep? Or, I, you know, I, I'm of those who don't get tattoos, so that makes me a more spiritual person. You're not in my crew. <laughs> of course, that's a lie, but... Spiritual living is the key. And Galatians is going to teach us how to do that. So Galatians is all about grace. Grace is how God imparts his spirit to us. And it's the opposite of legalism. Galatians describes how he's going to give us grace for justification. That's how you begin your relationship with God. That's how we all came to God. If you know God right now, it's because you understand that he freely gave you a gift of justification he justified you so that when you show up in heaven and you knock on the door and you say, hey, can I come in? And he's going to say, why should I let you into my heaven? You say, I was justified freely by grace. I asked Jesus to forgive me, and he did. Freely. That's the first step. That's how we enter into relationship with God. But the next step is the one that everyone gets tripped up on. It's called sanctification. Grace was for justification. Grace is also for sanctification. And this is the, one of the biggest lessons we're going to learn in Galatians. Is that the same way that you began your relationship with God, 
is the same way you're supposed to continue your relationship with God. How was that? Did you climb a mountain to meet God? No. Did you do some mighty work or or meet some cool person? No. Everything was a humble step of faith. You just said, God, I I am undone before you. I'm broken and I need you. And he said, okay, let me save you. And it was done. You're saved. Then we get it in our mind that we need to now, okay, now I need to start trying hard to walk as a Christian. I need to be trying really hard. And what happens every time we do that? We fall, right? We totally mess up. And it's designed to work that way. He wants us to continue to grow in our humble dependence upon him. And so sanctification, we see this process, as a process through our whole life of how we change from an ungodly person to a godly person, from a sinner to a saint in a practical sense. It's how we overcome sin. So Galatians is going to say, stop trying to be justified by works. Stop trying to grow to be like Jesus by your works. You can't grow to be like Jesus by trying to imitate him. That's not how you grow. You grow to be like Jesus by feasting on him, by partaking of him, by, being a, by him being in you and you being in him. And that relationship is how we grow, not by imitation. And the last thing that we're going to learn, so Galatians is going to, give us informa- or going to tell us that grace is our source for justification, for sanctification, and finally just for freedom. It's going to bring freedom into our lives. Just follow Jesus simply and trust his power and his strength in your life. And it's what's going to, that's what the book, the book is going to tell us. It's about freedom. So, um, it, while we're on the topic of legalism, I want to turn real quick to a couple books to the right, Colossians. And I just want to get a firm idea in our mind of what legalism is. And if you look at the last verse of Colossians, uh, the last paragraph of Colossians chapter 2, verse 20. It says, Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourself to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concerning things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom, in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. That verse is a verse we're going to come to several times during the next few weeks as we're talking about legalism, because that verse explains legalism. Legalism means there's a set of rules, there's a set of regulations, and there's a set of rituals that you need to follow. And if you don't follow those things, you're not a spiritual person. Or you don't know God or you're not pleasing God. He's, he's not happy with you in some way. And this book, what we're going to study, is that he frees us from these rules. There are no rules. The Christian life has nothing to do with any rules. Maybe one. Love Jesus. If you really love Jesus with all your heart... You do whatever you want to do, and you're going to be pleasing God. And that's the way God designed this to work. The Christian life is not about trying to 
keep a bunch of rules, rituals, or regulations. It's about being madly in love with Jesus and doing everything you could do to be like him, to, to spend time with him and let him change you. Does that make sense? Is that already bringing freedom? All right. We haven't even started yet. The last thing we'll say as an introduction to the book of Galatians is that grace, which Galatians is about grace, grace is for fickle people, which is awesome because I'm a fickle person. And you are too. And you are too. All of us in here are fickle people. But I want to explain that to you because when we're talking about Galatians, he wrote this letter to the people in Galatia which was an area in kind of the Turkey area. And it it actually describes in Acts 14 when Paul went to visit these people. And so him and Barnabas would go and they preach the gospel. And they got so excited when they heard the good news that they started, they they called Paul Zeus and Barnabas Hermes, or that might have been the other way around. But they were they wanted to worship them. They thought they were so awesome. The, the, this message that they were bringing was just so exciting. They, they had the guy coming down with the cow. They were just about to slaughter cows and throw garlands and whatever they did to worship their gods back then. Because they thought these were two gods because of the way they spoke. So they do this. And then some Jews come up and start whispering among the crowd. And the next moment they turn around... They're trying to kill them. They actually stone them and beat them and think that they're dead and throw them out of the city. And that's one day in the life of these fickle people. And these were the Galatians. This is what this letter was written to. Now, obviously, Paul did establish a church there. And this church was an exciting, growing church. And he he got them established. He taught them about the Lord. He taught them how they were supposed to go. And then... He went back to Jerusalem. He's hanging out in Jerusalem. He's, hanging, he's doing other missionary journeys, starting other churches. And he hears news of what's going on in Galatia. And you wouldn't believe it. Some false teachers have come in and started to teach them a lie. Started to teach them, oh, it's great that you love Jesus. That's awesome. But in order for you to go to heaven, you need to be circumcised. And they believed them. I would have stayed with Paul. But <laughs> they were like, oh, really? What? We need, to be cer- we need to start keeping these rules? And they said, yeah, you've got to keep all these rules. There's all these different regulations. And you've got to praise God this way. And don't eat that kind of animal. And make sure you wash your hands like this. And only ride on this side of the street, your bicycle, or whatever. They had so many rules. And these were called the Judaizers that came in. And they, and they had already dealt with them down in Jerusalem. But now Paul hears that the, the church in Galatians has been deceived by them. And so Paul is going to come in, and he's just going to... He, he can't even believe it. He doesn't hardly even say hello before he starts ripping them. And saying, what are you guys doing? As you're going to see here, verse 6, I marvel that you are turning away so quickly from him who called you in the grace of Christ. He's marveling. But we're going to get into that next week. For this week, we're going to start in verse 1. So he says in verse 1, Paul, an apostle, 
not from man nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Paul was an apostle. You guys know Paul? My wife loves Paul. She's like, the first guy I want to see in heaven is Paul. So she's, she would be really excited to hear me talking all about Paul today. Because she, she just loves hearing about him. Um, so Paul was an apostle. He was you know, called out, purchased for the price, given a job. But not really a job like we think. It was a ministry. You know, Normal jobs don't require you to get beat up all the time and eventually die and get shipwrecked and bit by snakes and all these other things that happened to him. And in fact, all the apostles, all 12 of the apostles, died a martyr's death. Did you guys know that? And you can go and research that in Fox's Book of Martyrs or uh, many other ways. But um, So the, to be an apostle was no just ordinary thing. It was, that doesn't mean like he was just a pastor. I think sometimes we think, oh, yeah, the apostle. Like I hear people on, you know, you hear people on TV say, oh, I'm an apostle. And, or I used to go to a church called Holy Apostles. You know, um, It's like the people have, want to take this authority on themselves today and say, what I say is equal to, to the word of God. But Paul was a true apostle. And it was a very specific job, and there was specific requirements that had to be met. One of them was that you had to have seen Jesus resurrected. And so that was something that Paul did see. On the Damascus Road, Jesus appeared to him. And that's how he got saved, actually. So he was an apostle. He was one of the 12 apostles. Do you guys remember the, the story of the apostles? Uh, when Judas, after Judas committed suicide, and Peter, they're, wait, they're supposed to, and this is in Acts, right, chapter 1. And Peter says, uh, you know, we're supposed to be waiting here for some Holy Spirit thing, I don't know. But I'm kind of restless and... Let's get a new, a new disciple so we have 12 again, right? Because one was gone. So they cast lots for these two guys that they thought should maybe be an apostle with them. So they picked one, and you never hear about that guy again. And it's just like Peter kind of rushing in, kind of not waiting on the Lord. What was he supposed to be doing? Waiting. Just wait. Just Jesus, like Peter, just wait. And Peter's like, oh, I can't. I, when, I, when my kids are sitting in the back seat and they just need to wait, I tell them to sit on their hands. Right? Because they can't just sit there still and not do anything wrong. And I feel like Peter's like that. So Peter's just supposed to wait. He doesn't. He makes this decision. And this other guy was picked. But we know that Paul was the real apostle. How much of the New Testament is written by Paul? Like almost all of it. You know, you got most of it written by Paul. And so Paul is one of the 12 apostles. You, and we know it's crazy because when we get to heaven, there's 12 pillars with the names of the 12 apostles on it. So we'll be able to check it when we get to heaven. Do you guys check me on that? So, Paul was an apostle. And that's important to know for this very beginning of the, um, of the book because he's going to be coming, dealing with something that he needs to come in with authority and say, you guys are wrong in this. And don't you remember? Uh, because the, the other people were coming in saying, oh, well, we're apostles too. And the words we say, they're just as good as the Bible. And we say, you need to do all these things. And Paul's saying, no, listen, I am a true apostle. I, I do know the word of God. So in... Uh, in Acts, I'm just going to read to you some things about Paul being, a, uh, what had gone on kind of in his life. Um, 
So he was establishing his authority right away because he was about to go to war. And the Lord said in Acts chapter 9, uh, it says, The Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And God had given him natural abilities and passion and zeal, and he had speaking abilities and, and leadership. But he had been using these things for selfish reasons all throughout his life. He had, uh, you know, he had been part of religion and legalism. And so he knows what he's talking about when he wants to bring freedom to these people. He's saying, I was there. I was a legalistic guy. In fact, in Acts 22, it says, I was indeed a Jew born in Tarsus of Sicilia, brought up in this, in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, and taught according to the strictness of our father's law, and was zealous towards God as you are all today. Legalism. Legalism doesn't mean you're not zealous towards God. It just means you're zealous in the wrong way. Zealous in the wrong way. You're zealous for works, not for being with him. Acts 26, he said, They knew me from the first, if they were willing to testify, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. So again, Paul knew what he was talking about. He's elite. He was down with the legalism. And then in our book right here, in verse 14, if you just look down there, he said, I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous <coughs> for the traditions of my fathers. So God, but yet God had made him with these gifts and with this passion and this zeal for a specific purpose. In the next verse, verse 15, it says, But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal himself, his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles. So God had made him for this specific purpose, just like God has made you the exact way he made you. And you may look at yourself and your personality and your strengths and your weaknesses and you may be thinking, there is, God had to make a mistake with me. Have you ever thought that? That I was, I was a mistake. This, was not, this is not the way that God wanted me to turn out. Do you think God wanted Paul to grow up as a Pharisee and grow up in legalism? No, God always had a plan for Paul. God always wanted to know Paul. God always wanted to use Paul. Paul was just going his own way for many, many years. But it doesn't change how much God had called him to. In fact, he is pretty special to us. You know, he, he was called to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And that's us, right? He was basically the apostle to us, teaching us how to live in freedom. But maybe you're thinking, I don't have any abilities I don't have education. I'm, I have nothing that Paul even had. I mean, he could at least be legalistic. I can't even brush my teeth right. You may be thinking that about yourself. Turn, if you can, find Amos, chapter 7. I want to look at this guy Amos for a second. Because he may be kind of like what you're thinking. If you go right after Jeremiah and Ezekiel, you'll get to Amos. Amos was this cool prophet in the Old Testament. I love Amos. In chapter 7, verse 14, he's, it's after Ezekiel, yeah, and 
after Daniel and Joel, you get to Amos. In Amos 7, verse 14, Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, nor was I the son of a prophet, but I was a sheep breeder and a tender of the sycamore fruit. Then the Lord took me as I followed the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. You know what a, a sheep breeder was? You probably picture it in your mind. You know what a tender of the sycamore fruit? Literally, it means he was the guy who would take the fruit and beat it with a stick until it was ripe. That was his job. I guess that was an important job back then. But sounds to me like it was a job your dad gave you when he didn't know what else to give you because you mess up everything else. That's what it sounds like to me. Do you guys feel like that sometimes? Like, I can't do anything right. But the Lord took him as he followed the flock. He wasn't even leading his flock. He was following them. They're like, oh, over here, there's a bear over there, and he's just like following them. So I just picture Amos, man, was nothing, and God took him and used him. Because God is looking for hearts. He's looking for hearts, hearts he can heal, hearts he can change, hearts he can use. It says in 1 Corinthians, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty. And that's why he chooses us. That's why he's chosen us to be here in this place. Because we're not mighty. We're not the presidents. We're not in the... I mean, look at us. Look around. (laughs) We're nothing mighty. But God loves to use us. He absolutely loves it. So how does this happen? How do I become the person that God can use to change this world, to change this part of Denver? We trust his strength. Not our way. We trust his way. When the world says it's, it's foolish to invest your time on Sundays and on Wednesdays at church, it's foolish to spend your time with an invisible guy every morning. That's really what they think. It's foolish for you guys to do this. But God says he loves to take what the world thinks is foolish and turn it around on them. And when the world's crashing down around you, you stand and you're like, my God's got it all under control. I'm going to be okay because God, I know God and God knows me. God loves me. It's a huge witness to them. Furthermore, in 2 Chronicles 16, it says the eyes of the Lord were running to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart are loyal towards him. So Paul was called to be an apostle. What are you guys called to? What are you called to? It's something great. It's something awesome. God has put a call on each one of you. And he's just looking for the heart that he can show himself strong in. It says he's going, his eyes are looking all around the world just for that one person who's going to depend on him. Yeah, we'll depend on him here in this church, I think. Now, we've depended on him so far, but I think we can grow in our dependence on him. So, we're going to move on. Paul, an apostle... Not from men, nor through man. If you look down again in Galatians chapter 1, verse 11 and 12, it says, But I want to make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached 
by me, the gospel that was preached by me is not according to men, for neither I received it from men, nor does I taught it. It came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Paul's calling wasn't from men. It wasn't man's idea. Do you guys get anything in your life, like the direction of your life, because of man's idea of what you should do in your life? Like what college you should go to? Are you getting man's opinion on those things? Or are we getting God's idea? You know, what we think is cool. Are we getting that from men? Or are we getting that from God? What we think is funny. Are we getting that from men? Or are we getting that from God? Because there is funny things. Look how he made me. What about what we get about news or politics? Are we getting these things from men or are we getting them from God, our opinion about these things? It's a good thing. Here's the thing. If our salvation comes from God and not men, and if the Holy Spirit comes from God and not men, if our very life and our breath comes from God and not men, why do we spend so much time on what men think or say we should be like or look like? You give me an amen on that. That's good. (laughs) All right. The next word in our... Bible here is the word but. And I love that because it shows this plan, this plan was not man's plan. It wasn't Paul's plan. It was God's plan. Everything God did with Paul was his idea. And you too. God has this plan for you guys. Every single one of you individually, he has a plan for you. And it's not according to man's plan. It's his plan. It's his idea. And I'm telling you, I never thought I would be a pastor of a church. I never did. But this was God's plan for me. And he revealed it to me. And I just can't even believe it. And the cool thing is, is that God wants to use us to accomplish his plan. Which means it's his effort, it's his strength, it's his work that's going to make this plan happen. Not ours. And so I know some of you are thinking, what am I going to do for God? You don't have to worry about it. It's already all planned out. What's your responsibility? Spend time with him. Love him. Spend time in the word. And you're going to have that plan just laid out in front of you. And it's probably going to look absolutely crazy the first time you see it. You're going to be like, what is this plan? Just like Paul. What was the first thing God told Paul? How much he's going to have to suffer for him. How much you're going to have to suffer for my name's sake, Paul. I don't know if I like this plan. Well, it doesn't matter because I'm going to give you the strength to do it. Okay. So many people have wanted to be used by God and wanted to serve God. And so they do things like they go to seminary. They go to Bible college. They start to do things that they think are good or according to that plan. But the problem sometimes becomes their pursuit of the plan they think is the plan, where they make the goal their God. Instead of making the pursuit of the goal to know Jesus, their pursuit is to get as many degrees as they can and become as smart as they can. What does the Bible say about knowledge? Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. God could care less how smart you are. He really could. Look who's made pastors. 
not the smartest people. But he does care about how loving we are. Huh? That's awesome. And it gives us hope because we don't have to be the smartest people. So the next word, the next phrase is not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. In that phrase, we see Jesus Christ and God the Father. I love that. And you might be thinking, are you really going to teach us the meaning of the word and? Sure. Every word of God is useful, right? Just kidding. Um, But it does link Jesus and God, uh, God the Father, and it shows that they're the same in authority, yet different in their relationship and rules. But they both wanted Paul. They both wanted to use Paul. Sometimes I think Jesus is the one who's saying, hey, Dad, why don't you use Sean? Why don't you use him? But the father's like, well, if I I have to. (laughs) But it's not that way. They both love me. They both want me. Matthew 28 says, go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, linking them all together. And in John 10.30 said, I and my Father are one. They're same in authority, and they both love you, and they both want to use you. All right, so now we get to the last part of this verse, which says, Who raised him from the dead. Both God, or Jesus loved him, called him. The Father loved him and called him, and it's the Father who raised him from the dead. So here he brings up the resurrection. The resurrection is what everything hinges on that we're going to talk about of the next Ten years, probably. The resurrection is what it's all about. So because our eternal destinies ride on the truth of this historical event, the resurrection has been the target of Satan's greatest attacks in the church. How many of you guys have been to a church and they actually challenge the resurrection? I've seen it. Where they say, well, we don't know for sure if Jesus rose from the dead. But accordingly, the, the historicity or the 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 viability of Christ's body resurrection has been examined and investigated from every angle and studied endlessly by countless scholars throughout all the centuries that have followed the event. And even though a number of theories have been come up with to try to decide what happened, because it couldn't have actually been a miracle, none of them have held, ever held water. It's always been proven an absolute fact that Jesus did rise from the dead. So I just wanted to read you this. This is from the Guinness Book of World Records. Uh, Sir Lionel Luckhu, that's a cool name. Uh, He's uh, of Guinness Book of World Records fame for his unprecedented 245 consecutive defense murder trial acquittals. He epitomized Christian and... Uh, enthusiasm and confidence in the strength of the case for the resurrection when he wrote, I've spent more than 42 years as a defense lawyer, trial lawyer appearing in many parts of the world, and I am still in active practice, and I have been fortunate to secure a number of successes in jury trials, and I say, unequivocally, the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so overwhelming that it compels acceptance by proof, which leaves absolutely no room for doubt. That's what I did when I read that. I went, hmm, yes, indeed. Just what I was thinking. (laughs) Again, not too smart. But 
Paul associates the call in his life, in this first verse of the, of the book, with the resurrection of Jesus. The power of his life, the authority on which he speaks, he, he associates it with the resurrection. In Ephesians 1, 19, it says, And what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us which believe according to the working of his mighty power which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places. Do you know what that means? It means the power that's working in you, the call that God has on you that he wants to accomplish in your life, it is not going to be accomplished through your efforts. It's going to be accomplished by the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. The same exact power. How much power did it take to raise Jesus from the dead? Like, a whole lot, probably. Oh, like, this is God's power. And that's the same power that you tapped into when you became a believer. When you said, Jesus, would you please save me? He said, resurrection power saved. You know? And it's also the same thing it says right here that works in us who believe on a day-by-day, minute-by-minute basis. Jesus, I want to love this guy who's being a jerk to me. And he said, resurrection power, here you go. Have it. Be loving. He will give us the power. He will. That's the promise. That's the freedom that's going to come in this book is that he gives us the power, and it's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. So here's the question. Does your life look like the resurrection? Hmm, what do you mean? Am I glowing? No. Do I have wings? No. I don't think Jesus did either, but... Do you see the power that God raised Jesus from the dead alive and working in you right now? Paul tells us clearly that it's not our own efforts... That's working inside us to bring about his will in our life. Look at Philippians 2.13. It is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. It's God doing the work in you. It's not us trying to do it. Oh, I wish I could just want to do what God wants me to do. If I had a nickel for every time I've heard people say, I just wish I wanted to do God's will. God is the one who's working it in you to will and to do for his good pleasure. And this working is the same working that brought up Jesus from the dead. So what does it mean that we have the same power working in us? It means we are experiencing the new life. A new life. Just as Jesus was brought up from the dead, when you were baptized, you came up, and it was a picture of a new life that you have. A resurrection life filled with resurrection power. Old things pass away and all things become made new. And there's no doubt that the power that raised Jesus from the grave has the power to change our lives and my actions and my heart and bring new life to our bodies of death. And it's not just for salvation, like we said. It's power for our daily lives to will and to do for his good pleasure. Don't you wish you just sometimes had something that took you over so you did the right thing, that's real. That's called the Holy Spirit. He takes you over to do the right thing. And we'll talk about how you invite him to do that. So the resurrection was always the central thought of Paul when he thought about his own life and calling. 
when we think about the resurrection in regards to our war on legalism that we're talking about, but think about this. Did God accept Jesus' sacrifice? Do we need to keep, then, do we need to keep making sacrifices if God accepted Jesus' sacrifice? So, Jesus died, presented himself as an offering, right, for our sin. Then he was resurrected, showing that God accepted his sacrifice. What else can be done? Nothing. There is nothing you can do to add to what Jesus already did. So you're telling me Jesus is just happy with me? Yes. You tell me Jesus just loves me the way I am? And he's not asking me to do anything to add to what he did? Yes. That's exactly what I'm saying. Jesus just loves you because he put all his good work that he did on the cross... His sacrifice, he plopped it on you and said, look how great you are. That's what happens. And that's why we don't have to keep making sacrifices. It doesn't add anything. That sacrificial system is done away with. So I don't need to worry about my performance of the law when I'm in Christ. Not when I'm in Christ. Philippians 3 says that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death if by any means I may attain from the resurrection of the dead. Knowing Jesus is a gradual process and every day as we embrace his death and we die to ourselves and live in the power of his resurrection, the same God that raised Jesus from the dead will be working in my life to raise me, to give me this resurrection life. We say... God, I turn away from my way of thinking and I die to it. And I start to think the way you want me to think. How about the way I'm reacting? I turn away from that and I die to it. And I start to react the way you want me to react. We live in and we ask him for his power to do this in us. And that's how we experience this resurrection. So this is kind of like a crazy step of faith that we have to take every day. And instead of us trying really, really hard every day, what God is really asking for is just a step of faith every day. And it changes our way we think about our life when we think about it that way. And it brings freedom because faith is not work. It's rest. Because you're just trusting the work of someone else. I'm trusting the work that Jesus did for me and he's going to do in me. It's so freeing. It's so restful of a place to be. So, Paul was called and he pursued that calling with great passion. It says in 1 Corinthians 15 that by the grace of God I am what I am and his grace towards me was not in vain but I labored more abundantly than they all yet not I but the grace that was in me. So he was really going after his calling. He was pursuing it. He wanted to go after it but he was pursuing something else even more. And this is the last thing we're going to say. It's Philippians 3.8. He said, Yet indeed, I count all things loss, even my calling, even my job as an apostle, all things loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, that I may gain a cool job. No, that's not what it says. That it may gain an awesome reputation. No. 
that I may save my family and friends. Nope. He says that I may gain Christ. That's it. That's all Paul wanted. And in this first verse, we pulled all this out, just seeing that Paul depended on Jesus alone for everything. That's what all of it was about. It was just Jesus. And so we're here in the Denver campus, in this church, this beautiful place. And we're not looking. I don't, I don't want to see you guys trying hard. I want to see you guys at rest. I want to see you guys just enjoying each other's presence because we're just seeking Jesus. And Jesus has decided to be here with us tonight. He's here with us. We invited him. He said, okay, I'll come with you guys. And he's been here with us now. So let's all stand up. And let's just talk to this Jesus who we are seeking. Jesus, Lord, you have given us so much when you died on the cross. That was such a great sacrifice. It was such an amazing, amazing work that you did. It was so, honestly something that we could not do for ourselves. It was something we could not even begin walking down that road carrying that cross. But Lord, you did. You had the power to do it. And you had the willing heart to do it. And Lord, you're willing to do it in our hearts day by day, even today. For those who put their eyes, fix their eyes on you, Lord, you are a power for them. God, you give your Holy Spirit to the humble person who calls out to you. So we want to be those people right now who call out to you. Lord, we want to give you all the glory that's due to your name. And we want to just praise you. Lord, we thank you for this night. God, we thank you for this church. Allowing us to come in here and meet and, and just praise you, God. Study your word. Lord, we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We pray that you've been touched by this study from Pastor Ed Taylor from Calvary Chapel of Aurora. We really want to hear from you. Please visit our website at www.calvaryaurora.org or call us at 303-628-7200. Outside the Denver metro area, the call is toll-free at 877-304-7223. We pray that your heart is filled this day with God's abounding grace.